Maureen Conway. I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the inaugural event of our conversation series, Working in America. Um, and I'd like to thank the Charles Stuart Mott Foundation and the Ford Foundation for their generous support of this series. Um, work has been an important topic in, in the news lately with persistently high unemployment, longer durations of unemployment, and declining labor force participation, jobs, and how to stimulate job creation are important subjects for debate. Um, and indeed, an improvement in job creation is critical to working Americans now. But at the same time, we need to think about the kinds of jobs we are creating and uh, consider whether the experience of work is providing the kinds of rewards to Americans that we expect from hard work. Indeed, the number and rate of working poor has also been climbing in recent years. And we've, the fact that we've come to accept the term working poor <laughs> underscores that work may not be providing the kind of economic opportunity we expect in our society. In this series, we'll be talking about a variety of issues faced by American workers as they struggle to succeed in today's labor market focusing primarily on workers in the lower half of the earnings distribution. And we begin to, with our discussion today on the minimum wage. Um, I'm delighted to introduce you to our terrific panel. They've been having a very lively and spirited discussion <laughs> yeah. over lunch. And so I'm glad we're getting a chance to, to bring it out into this room to you. I am not going to read you their bios. Uh, you have them in your materials, so I will just briefly um, uh, I put names to faces here. So um, right next to me is Heidi Shearholz, econo economist from the Economic Policies Institute. Um, to her left is uh, Christine Owens, executive director of the National Employment Law Project. Uh, next we have Ron Unz, publisher of the American Conservative. Uh, to his left is Nick Hanauer, who is an <coughs> entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and partner in Second Avenue Partners. And we are delighted to have with us today Robin Farzad of um, Bloomberg Business Week to moderate today's discussion. So with that, I will just turn it over to you, Robin. And thank you all again for being here. And please silence yourself. <laughs> That's my mom calling. No. Uh, thank you, Maureen. I appreciate it. And thank you uh, to the Institute for having me here today. I'm a big fan. Uh, I start with one piece of journalistic wisdom to throw out there. As a business journalist, we are told that you never trust the venture capitalist not wearing socks. And as you can see, Nick did not let me down. <laughs> as he's I told him, you. you should never trust the venture capitalist. <laughs> there is. And also ones that don't wear socks. So. so looking at this environment that we are right now, I find that it's an interesting peg for this conversation and that there's a confluence of two things going on right now. The stock market is at an all-time high and food stamp usage is at an all-time high. And I challenge you to find another period in, in recent economic history where you've seen that kind of divergence. I think writ large that speaks to a lot of the themes that we're going to get at here today, that there are kind of two choruses going on in this economy right now. Corporate profits, as, as Nick mentioned in the meeting we just had, as a percentage of uh, output in this country are at a half-century high. Um, buying power, real buying power uh, among kind of rank-and-file people out there is deteriorating. We have not had an increase uh, in the minimum wage, for example, since it was uh, pushed through in 2009. So even in real terms, and you didn't expect in this great recession, this great economic calamity of ours, $7.25 is actually closer to $6.75. And we certainly know that, for example, a high CPI number came in this morning. People know that they are paying more for food. Gas has been chronically more expensive. Rents have gone up. Uh, in a period of really low interest rates, and you're not collecting anything on your savings. So you're getting pinched. So these are some of the inputs, I think. These are 
some of the things that go into the conversation we're going to have today. And I'd like to start with uh, Christine Owens, actually, in terms of giving us a primer on the history of the minimum wage, how it came out of, of, of kind of what economic evolutionary ooze did we get the minimum wage? <laughs> <laughs> well, the ooze that gave us the minimum wage was the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. It was very much, you know, it was a centerpiece of the New Deal. Uh, it was enacted after 10 states had already passed minimum wage rates, and it was enacted both to provide, in Franklin Roosevelt's words, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work, but also because of a view that it was good for the economy uh, to have a certain minimum wage at the bottom of the labor market and to provide overtime pay. The idea was this would actually stimulate spending and help create job growth. Uh, over the years between 1938 and now, uh, the minimum wage has been raised a number of times. So within the last, over the last 30, 32 years, Congress has only enacted three increases. <coughs> And this really gets to your point about the $7 and a quarter. Uh, the minimum wage reached its high point in terms of spending power in 1968. And that was after, in general, increasing every so often until uh, it reached its high point. But then during the dark days of the 1980s, the minimum wage was frozen um, at uh, I think it was under $3 an hour for 10 years. So that by 1991, the minimum wage was at its lowest value since 1968. Uh, we got an increase in 91, we got another increase in 96, and then we got the 2007 increase. But if you looked at a chart of minimum wage growing and then falling, you'd see that the more precipitous decline was over that period of the 80s. Uh, President Ronald Reagan opposed minimum wage per se, ideologically opposed it. Um, and we recovered a little bit of ground over the last 30-some years, but we are way below where we were in 1968. It's 30% below the value of 1968. It's also below the um, half a median wage, which is another traditional standard for the minimum wage. And what we've seen historically is that states have often taken the lead in response to uh, the federal abuse and neglect of the minimum wage. And so right now we have 19 states, including the District of Columbia, that have higher minimum wages than the federal rate. And 10 of those states actually index their minimum wages so they go up every single year. Uh, most of those are still too low to really provide a living wage. Washington State's minimum wage is, uh, I think, nine, 19 an hour. It's the highest state wage. And there are several cities that have minimum wages above $10 an hour. But in general, these states have certainly far surpassed the feds in terms of uh, what they've done with respect to trying to maintain a decent wage floor through higher state minimum wages. Now, Heidi, it has been posited by um, the, the financial journalist Dan Gross that the Doritos Tacos Locos Supreme is driving a big part of economic growth. Is right? that right? <laughs> and I would like to get an idea if you could. Say on that. No, that's really there. You can Google it. I'd like to get an idea because we talk about opposition from the food service industry and, and, and um, low wage service jobs in this country. How would that affect something like a dollar twenty taco, for example, that does pay a certain dividend to even low paid customers who can go and avail themselves of these products? Usually the first question I get asked is, what's it going to do to employment? So we'll wrap back around to that. But the question of what will it do to inflation 
The answer is it, it will likely increase prices in the restaurant industry a very little bit. So our best estimates are that a 10% increase in the minimum wage will increase prices at restaurants by 0.7%. Um, so that's the kind of magnitude we're looking at. It's not going to have a noticeable effect on the overall price level. But it could, like I said, it could, it could have some impact on prices in these um, high, the industries that, that, high, that, that employ a lot of minimum wage workers. It will also give wage increases to minimum wage workers in those industries. And so the workers in those industries will be better off. Now, Ron, you know we're in a period right now of, of, of budgetary showdowns. Every two, three months, I, I call one. If not the fiscal cliff, then the budgetary butte. Um, you posit that actually this could be framed in terms of, there's a, there's a counterintuitive point that there is political strength to be gained from this. From the numbers that you crunch, for example, there could be a, a, a big windfall to uh, federal coffers. Uh, how does that work? Well, very much so. I mean, right now, for example, the, for the last couple of decades, two or three decades, the main alternative to raising the minimum wage, for example, has been the earned income tax credit, which essentially involves the government sending checks to people to make up for the fact that they're poor because their wages are so low. Now, it seems to me from a logical perspective, it's much better that the costs of a worker be borne by the worker's employee, employer rather than borne by the average taxpayer. I mean, in, in effect, the argument made by many uh, pro-business or ideological libertarians even these days is that the ideal minimum wage would be very low, almost non-existent, and the way to address poverty is for the taxpayers to pay the workers. Now, if you have a situation where workers in effect are paid almost nothing, but the average taxpayer makes up that difference by sending them checks from the government. I mean, that's a very irrational way of running a society. I mean, in effect, it's the classic example of socializing the costs of a business and privatizing the benefits, where the lobbyists, for example, for many of these businesses, since they don't want to pay their workers the money that their workers are generating for them, simply get the average taxpayer to make it, which is ridiculous. So in other words, every rise in the minimum wage would cut costs going through the earned income tax credit. Furthermore, when we look, for example, at the uh, taxes right now going towards social security or medical expenses, those again, a rise in the minimum wage means more of that is paid to the government. And that would help buttress right now our social services system and you know, eliminate, for example, a collapse in social security or the need to raise social security tax rates to a much higher level. A aside from all of that, obviously a substantial rise in the minimum wage would cause a huge influx of extra dollars into the pockets of the lowest wage workers in our society most of them right now spend every dollar that they earn. So you would see a considerable fiscal multiplier effect. In effect, a rise in the minimum wage, a large rise in the minimum wage, is almost the same as a fiscal stimulus, except a fiscal stimulus that you'd have, I think, a much better chance of getting through Congress. And a fiscal <laughs> stimulus, furthermore, that's not funded by the taxpayer, but funded by the employer of those workers. It's a private sector fiscal stimulus. And in fact, in many ways, it might benefit the private sector considerably because right now, for example, you see constantly a lot of private businesses worried about the fact that the people <coughs> shopping at Walmart, the people shopping at many of these stores have less and less money every year to buy the goods. Now, if on the other hand, suddenly low-wage workers 
were earning much more, they could basically shop at Walmart, they could shop at these stores, and it would help drive the economy. Finally, one last point I'd like to put in, and that has to do with the politics of the situation. Uh, obviously, President Obama somewhat unexpectedly in a State of the Union address proposed a rise in the minimum wage to $9 an hour. Personally, I, I think that'll have a very hard time getting through Congress because the Republicans control the House. Republicans are ideologically opposed to any rise in the minimum wage, and I, I don't know if it'll get anywhere. On the other hand, a much larger proposed rise in the minimum wage, I think would have a much better chance counterintuitively of getting through Congress for a very simple reason. When you're looking at $9 an hour, the only workers who would benefit with those making between $7.25 and $9 an hour, it's a relatively small slice of the lowest paid workers right now who are overwhelmingly democratic when they bother to vote at all. If on the other hand you were talking about a much more dramatic rise to $10 or $12 or even more dollars an hour, we're talking about something that suddenly would impact, if you're talking $12 an hour, 40% of all the wage workers in America, tens of millions of workers, including very large numbers of Republican workers, conservative workers, the people right now who vote for the Republican members of Congress. And they would probably pay much more attention to you know, pressure from that sector than they would from the lowest wage uh, democratic workers, and also the dollars you're offering. If you're talking about a $9 wage increase, you're talking about basically after you deduct the earned income tax credit and other clawbacks, you're talking about probably about $1,000 next year for those workers on average. If you're talking about $12 an hour, you're talking about $5,000 per worker, possibly $10,000 per couple. And those are the sorts of numbers that would really get people's attention. And they would stop listening to Rush Limbaugh and say, for $10,000 an hour, I don't care what Rush says, I'm going for it. Yeah. But Nick, um, there's an important thing we're missing out here. There's yeah. a reason why there's an opposition. Yes. There's a strong opposition to this. It's going well right now for Walmart. It's going well yes. for Target. I mean, yes. why mess with a good thing, they say. They say that we're in a position to provide. You look at our hundreds of thousands of employees domestically. Yes, we buy a lot from China. Why would you throw that monkey wrench into something that's going well for us, especially as we can turn around and sell $25 DVD players to anyone who walks into a Walmart? Yeah, so I think that, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, we, in this country for a very long time, we've labored under uh, a particular conception about how <coughs> capitalist economies work, uh, which has uh, allowed us to confuse what's good uh, narrowly for a certain group of capitalists and what's good broadly for capitalism. Uh, and, and while there is simply no doubt that uh, for the shareholders of Walmart and the very senior executives, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a low and plummeting uh, minimum wage is in the short term good for them, uh, it's by no means good for the economy in a sustained way. And, you know, this whole sort of framework of trickle-down economics, this idea that if you make the rich richer, if you make profits higher, that that will generate jobs and shared prosperity, it, 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 you know, which is accepted, by the way, on the right and left, uh, is it, just false. If there was a shred of truth to the idea that the more profitable corporations got, the more jobs they'd create, or the better the economy would be, then today, for instance, given that profits are already 50-year high, we should be drowning in jobs. But Walmart, right. Walmart has said, will say, the executives in your presence, yeah. that 
We've been mercilessly pushing prices down, and yes, that's killed the mom and pop, but again, this dividend accrues to John Q. Public. I'm sure they could back the envelope for you and say, since we were founded, we've, we've afforded people this, this standard of living and these products that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get. It, 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 but Robin, even Walmart is panicking about the destruction of the middle class today. You know, even in places like Walmart, people are discovering that the customers that they used to have are disappearing and becoming poorer and poorer. I mean, the, the, pro the problem is that, that economies, which are complex adaptive systems and are characterized by positive feedbacks, are either in virtuous cycles or death spirals. And we are currently in a death spiral of falling demand. As, as, worker, as the average worker earns less and less, and a tiny minority of people earn more and more, you break the cycle of the, the virtuous cycle of increasing returns that capitalism is capable of creating. And the beauty of raising the minimum wage is that it dispenses with the very problematic competitive problems you have with, for instance, unionization, which where one company is unionized and another isn't. So Walmart vociferously resists unionization because if Walmart is unionized and they pay their workers $15 but other people don't, that's a terrible problem for them. And, <coughs> and, and the thing about the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage, is it, can, it, it, it allows business people to stop thinking about workers simply as costs to be cut and, starts, and allows you to start thinking about them as customers to be cultivated. You know, the, the only thing that matters to businesses is customers. That's it. It's not regulation. It's not, you know, the only thing that matters is customers. And raising the minimum wage, for instance, to $15 an hour affects 64% of the workforce. It basically is a massive infusion of, uh, of customers for companies like Target and Walmart and so on and so forth, even McDonald's. Now, I can pass the question on to Heidi. We have mentioned the earned income tax credit mm -hmm. a couple of times. And it's a little paradoxical, and it's something that seems like a net transfer from uh, Washington back to the populace, where the budgets that are already stressed um, could actually turn out to be a net positive when factored into any sort of minimum wage increase. How would that work? So the thing that I think is super interesting and is, has come up a ton since Obama made the announcement in the State of the Union that he was interested in increasing the minimum wage, I've heard more discussions about uh, maybe we should increase the EITC instead. And you brought this up that there's this idea that these are competing policies and that's wrongheaded. That's not actually how it works. Those two policies work together. And in fact, the EITC needs a strong minimum wage to be well targeted. So the, 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 the sort of two sentence intuition on that is if the EITC substantially raises the after-tax wages of workers who are eligible for it. So it may act to reduce the before-tax wages they will accept. But because but where, they does know that, where does the EITC yeah. come from? Even unpack that for us before we... Where does it come from? I mean, from what... From Just what basis. From taxes? Yes, wait, I might not understand the question. For the EITC consideration to be made at tax season, where does that money come from? That there has to be a source of that money in a, in a very tight budget right now, in a very tight deficit system. What is the genesis of that, that money? I don't understand. I, I might not understand the question aside the from the Who's paying for the EITC? Me. Yeah, right. taxpayers are. So there is right. a transfer of wealth. Yes. Oh, no, but yeah. here's the other <laughs> yeah. thing that I was going to say about the EITC is because it acts to reduce the before-tax wages that um, recipients will will accept, 
It reduces the before-tax wages that low-wage workers have, low-wage employers have to pay. So low-wage employers capture a ton of the expenditure, the total expenditure on EITC. So that it's not just EITC expenditures aren't just going to low-wage workers, they're also going to low-wage employers. And that's one of the key ways the EITC and the minimum wage work together because the minimum wage, by putting a if you increase it, by putting a stronger floor under the wages that low-wage employers can pay, you're actually limiting their ability to capture the total expenditure on EITC and making the EITC better targeted. So it has sure. both the sort of fiscal that increasing the minimum wage has the angle that you're taking at, and this makes the expenditures that we do have on the EITC better but targeted. I, I, just wanna, I just wanna underscore a point, which is that if you raise the minimum wage to $15, you affect 64% of the workforce, 50 million workers will a earn an average of $7,600 more a year, 30 million will earn an average of $2,100 more a year. That's $450 billion more per year that is pre-distributed from the economy which is definitionally going from the more prosperous to the least prosperous. And just back of the envelope, theoretically, that's $450 billion that we don't have to spend on them to keep them out of poverty and out of cardboard boxes. And if you consider the fact that it's actually, it, no matter how efficient government is, there is some sort of friction to get $450 billion to them, it's probably a savings of 500 or 550 or 600 billion dollars. What percent of annual government spending is 600 billion dollars? What is that? I don't know. Anyone what is know? that? In round numbers. In round numbers. That's 4% of GDP. It's a third of the annual federal budget, right? This is a big number. But is there, is there a monkey wrench in this? Perhaps Chris can answer in that um, families, if you're looking at this as a, as a married couple, for example, and you get that infusion up to $12 or $15, that you're leery of losing government benefits, that you hit a kind of a tipping point where you're not eligible for Medicaid, that it would, health care costs obviously would eat an entire part of, of the net gain that you got from this. Is that a consideration? You know, I think if you ask most workers whether they like to earn a decent minimum <laughs> yeah. wage. What's wrong or, with that? <laughs> yeah, or get government benefits, they'd say. No, but this is the net package, though. If you, have to, if you do it on your own and you have to go out and give up Medicaid. You know, I mean, uh, first give up, I think. Give up SNAP. Uh, then it's a fully loaded cost. No, it's a fair question. I, I don't know if this, if, if, there's a, if, if, if there's a calculation that people have to make that overall my net gain out of these out-of-pocket expenses, because I can't imagine that these retailers are going to ramp up medical coverage in addition to well, they're moving a in the opposite direction actually yeah. but but the fact is you know the minimum wage has fallen so far historically in terms of its value and is so far below a living wage that uh, the kind of more modest in the very modest increase the president proposed the somewhat more modest increase that uh, Senator Harkin and, and Congressman Miller have proposed to 1010 10 an hour the $12 increase a $15 increase uh, minimum wage workers overall would benefit from higher wages, um, from their ab ability to spend more to support themselves and their families. Um, hopefully health care issues will be addressed somewhat it's starting in 2014 with the uh, health exchanges and the like. So, you know, some people on the margins may lose a bit, but overall minimum wage workers and we as a society are better off with a decent living wage that, as Heidi points out, lifts up the bottom of the, of the wage floor. I mean, sure. I, I want to add one point to 
Nick's comment about the middle class, which is in this uh, post-recession recovery, what we've seen is the growth, uh, disproportionate growth of low-wage jobs. Yeah. And this actually builds on uh, work that Seeper and others have done that show a declining quality in jobs over the past 30-odd years. Uh, I think now more than ever, a strong minimum wage is really critical to the kind of economy we're building for the future. I mean, we all, we joked about uh, folks who are spending $100,000 for their kids' college educations and something like 50% of college students, college graduates, are working in jobs that require a high school diploma or less. So we have to be realistic about the job growth in this economy and what we need in an economy where there's nothing working to drive wages up. And, um, and, and we need a strong minimum wage to build the bottom of, of the, wage, the wage floor at the bottom of the labor market because that increasingly is going to be the labor market that our kids are going to be going into. Right, and, and just for context, because we are in a, we, we are in a context with trends. So in 1980, the top 1% shared 8% of national income. The bottom 50% of Americans shared about 18%. Now, the top 1% share about 24% of national income. The bottom 50% share 12% of national income. If you run just a straight line linear extrapolation, if you, just, if you just assume that the trend continues, in another 30 years, the top 1% will have 37% of national income and the bottom 50% will share 6%. So here's the problem with that. Forget the revolution and the death and the politics of that. So I have many businesses, but one of them is a, we manufacture bed pillows and down comforters. And, and the problem is, is that I make approximately a thousand times the median wage, right? Or annually. The, but I only still use one pillow. I don't have a thousand pillows. Neither does any other person who earns a thousand times the median wage. You can't operate a pillow business selling to 1% of the population. I need everybody to be able to buy a pillow. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It's like Monopoly, right? When, when one person gets all the money in the hotels, the game is over. <laughs> that, that's the problem with capitalism, is that when one person gets everything, the game is over. It, it feels good for the one person. But you, you know, it, this is the issue. This is why you have to do these things. Now, Ron. Um, this is interesting in that somebody flicked at it earlier. There's a southern paradox here in that uh, people who are disproportionately Republican voting um, are disproportionately to benefit from a, an increase in the minimum wage. How does that work? Well, I mean, that, that's the whole thing. In other words, the ideological skew of this issue is a, little bit count, is a little bit contrary to reality. In other words, it seems to me that the strongest single force focused in opposition to the minimum wage are really tend to be sort of ideologues and maybe the lobbyists who are driving them in that, you know, when you think of it from the point of view of, you know, free market economics, it really doesn't make much sense for employers not to have to pay their own workers and to have the government pay the workers via something like the earned income tax credit. 
but you know, obviously, employers would prefer not to have to pay their own workers and have others have taxpayers pay their workers. And so, you know, since employers have a lot of lobbyists and they fund a lot of think tanks and employ a lot of academic scholars who sort of are willing to focus on certain things and not other things, you really see a situation where, for example, most conservative intellectuals support direct fiscal transfer via the earned income tax credit, even though it's contrary to every principle of logical free market economics. While, you know, something else which really makes much more sense is simply to force workers to get money from the people who are getting the value of their labor. In the, mean, in the meantime, you say Southern Whites provide the ballast <coughs> exactly, of the party. Exactly. And you know, one of the key things is when you look at the politics of the issue again, if you're focused on a small rise in the minimum wage, the people who benefit tend to be Democrats and people who don't vote very much. And so it's going to be very hard to get, for example, the Republicans to support something like that. On the other hand, uh, you know, unfortunately, the data doesn't show Democratic versus Republican affiliation. But if you use, for example, Southern whites as a proxy for Republicans, because probably 90% of them vote Republican or more, it turns out that a rise in the minimum wage to $12 an hour would benefit 40% of all Southern whites. And that's the sort of thing, you know, huge benefits, $5,000 a year per person. I think they would put a lot of pressure on the Republicans in Congress to support something like that. Uh, another aspect of the issue, which is a little bit, um, usually doesn't get much attention, is the relationship of this to a very hot button issue among conservatives, which is the whole immigration issue. It looks like Congress right now is moving towards an amnesty proposal and possibly changes in legal immigration as well. And, you know, I, I, I think some of those ideas make perfect sense, but I, I don't think they make any sense unless they're combined with a large increase in the minimum wage. For example, right now, a hugely disproportionate share of the current uh, illegal immigrants in the United States are employed in the lowest wage sector of the society. Once they get their amnesty, once they get legal papers, many of them will be able to get better jobs, will move up the economic ladder. But if those jobs, if those very low paid jobs still exist, if they're allowed to exist, that will simply cause a huge suction effect where a new generation of illegal immigrants will come to the United States. In other words, right, how if you have people who are making $8 an hour, and once they get legal papers, they can get a job that makes $10, $12, $13 an hour. But if the $8 an hour job still exists, then obviously that would provide incentives for another wave of illegal immigrants to arrive. And that's exactly what happened after the 1986 Immigration Reform Act. In other words, it legalized the existing immig illegal immigrants, but a new wave came in afterwards. Now, it seems to me that you know, if you combine the current amnesty proposal with a large increase in the minimum wage, not only would the current low-wage workers benefit, but it would drive out of the economy those ultra-low-wage jobs which tend to produce a vacuum effect for illegal immigrants. In other words, you know, the vast majority of illegal immigrants come to the United States for jobs. That's the reason they come. Right now, many times they take these ultra-low-wage jobs that really should not exist in a developed country like the United States. In other words, you know, one argument people make sometimes is that the problem with a high minimum wage is it'll destroy jobs. But it seems to me destroying, for example, sweatshop labor, destroying sweatshop jobs, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That's one of the benefits <laughs> of a higher But Ron, wouldn't those sweatshop sure. jobs go to Bangladesh? 
Certainly or they China. would, and they should go there. In other words, you can't have, uh, American society right now should not be structured in such a way that it has very large number of extremely low-wage jobs, where the only people willing to take those jobs tend to be immigrants who don't have documents. In other words, you really should have a system where, if, where we would follow the path, for example, of other countries around the world, developing countries, that over the years have gradually boosted their minimum wage so as to migrate the economy to a higher wage sector employment. Uh, we should not force workers to take terribly low paid jobs and we should not have those industries that can only survive if we're competing with Bangladesh for the lowest wage jobs in the world. Now Nick Hanauer, you are that rare enlightened robber baron. And as we said before, it's a few and far between example, but there are examples. Yeah. We, we mentioned Costco, Whole Foods. Costco, for example, uh, has a very desirable job, has a backlog of people, pays people a living wage, has gotten press in the New York Times for it, yeah. um, paid out a fat special dividend to shareholders in December that maybe you could have the Seattle best company, of both worlds. Yeah. And it's a Seattle company. Please give us some We're examples so awesome. of, of, of yeah. when this kind of works in isolation. For example, uh, uh, one that is unionized, that is, 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 is able to thrive and succeed in spite of its rivals racing to the bottom. There have to be more examples. Yeah, uh, look, there, there are all sorts of examples. So, so, so in, in, in competitive marketplaces, there are many ways to compete. Uh, you know, and, and you know, a strategy 101 is, are you going to compete on quality or are you going to compete on price? And, and Costco has chosen to compete on quality. Uh, 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 and, and they have done it very, very successfully. Uh, but, but, but just because, and I happen to know the guys that founded Costco very, very well, and they are extraordinary yeah, But how beings. are they doing that? Walmart has an analog to Costco and Sam's Club. It's just, it's just a different way to compete. You, again, uh, 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 you know, it's the difference between Hyundai and Mercedes. You know, you can, you can, you, you can, you know, try to win a race to the bottom or you can try to win a race to the top. Both represent viable ways to compete in marketplaces. But, but I think the broader point is that just because you can point to an example of a successful enterprise that treats workers well doesn't mean that that example is going to force other people to do it or is enough, it, 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 it is all you need in a society to make sure that you don't end up in a race to the bottom. Sure. It, ta it takes more than that. Like, you know, like child labor. I mean, the Costco guys, Jim Senegal and Jeff Brotman, are not going to employ child labor, uh, even if there were laws that, if, even, if, even if there were no laws to do it. But I guarantee you there are plenty of people who would do, sure. do it if they could. Heidi, so. expand this talk of values that we have in this do system. Do we have those? No, no, there is, so, okay. there is a statement, there is a statement that uh, your organization supports and there is a chance to put out uh, these things and use moral suasion to get companies and employers and institutions on board. How would that work? So one of the things that I think is, and it, it touches on a bunch of the stuff we have already talked about, um, the minimum wage is a basic labor standard in this country. It was established to, to as with a deliberate attempt to increase the health and well-being of American workers, to put a floor under the wages that low-wage employers are allowed to pay, to help, you know, as one of the tools we can use to ensure broadly shared prosperity. Seventy-five years later, it's still critically important. So in that sense, um, 
and along those lines, the, um, this loops also back around to this, this, a lot of the talk about will this be offset with other um, government transfers that people are getting. A lot of the people who would benefit from an increase in the minimum wage are actually from moderate income households. There's a lot of people who would benefit, who, who, um, who would see a raise, who earn between the poverty line and, say, the median family income, which is about $60,000. And that's okay. It is a basic labor standard, and that, that, that idea that a lot of people who would benefit are actually moderate income households, for me, it underscores that when these basic labor standards are allowed to erode, which is what has happened over the last 45 years with the minimum wage, it hurts not just low, but also <coughs> moderate income households. So um, that's one piece of, I, I think, a values thing. Now, I'll, I'll leave the it vision at that. Thing. Yes, yes. yes. Now, Chris, uh, I'm curious to see, uh, for example, you don't see rioting in the streets about it. I'm not trying to be flip. People tend to perceive that there's a general equilibrium here. I can get my low main delivered for a certain price and I can expect that the prices are going to be relatively stable. Um, there isn't this idea of impending social revolution over this yet. But what does it say about our culture? I mean, Nick opened up with these thoughts that it's lopsidedly shareholder value driven, and, and, and certain people are okay with that. And not just the wealthy people in the country, but those who can look at their 401ks and want corporate stability. What is it saying? Well, I, I think. Um you know, there are plenty of things we could be rioting in, in the street about, right? <laughs> I mean, we have five million long-term unemployed workers, who um, many of whom have had good jobs, middle-class lifestyles, and now are facing uh, retirements and poverty. Um, it is, you know, to get back to one of your, uh, I, I don't remember if I spoke to this or not, but if you, the polling on the minimum wage is amazing. Um, Last year, in 2012, 73% of Americans supported raising the minimum wage to $10 an hour. And every single demographic group except for Republican men, which I assume is largely white men, um, so, uh, had majority support and more. And Republican men even supported at a, rare, a fairly high level. So I think, you know, Heidi's right, this is a core standard. It's almost I've always felt like Americans think of the minimum wage almost like a constitutional right in a way that they don't. And in fact, in a couple of states, minimum wage has actually become part of the Constitution um, in a way that they don't about other things. Um, but and, and we have, I think that we assume that most employers obey the law. And we don't realize that for example, in surveys we've done, 25% of low-wage workers uh, have been denied payment of the minimum wage, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, and I think that part of the, I don't think we're going to have rioting in the street of the minimum wage, although I think we could, because I, I really do think the sort of sleeping giant in all of this is those of us who have kids who have just graduated from college or will be graduating. And that social compact. Is right, and going into a labor market in which there are no jobs or the jobs they can get don't pay very well, that the consciousness around uh, the minimum wage as a basic wage standard that lifts the floor for everyone uh, is going to be elevated. And 
you know, we don't have riot in in the street, but every time I do a, a talk radio show and callers call in, parents talk about that and their kids having come back home to live with them because they can't get jobs or they can't get jobs that uh, provide enough to pay rent or provide benefits and the like. So I, I think we could be, you know, on the cusp of something in terms of a rising public awareness of and concern about wages and I would say it's long overdue. We have a jobs crisis in that we we lost eight million jobs during the downturn. We still have a deep jobs hole to fill, but we have a greater wage crisis, which EPI has documented in um, great detail, and a big piece of that wage crisis, not the only part, um, but a big piece is the declining value of the minimum wage. Okay. Now, Maureen, do we have 10 minutes for Q&A? Uh, yes. We, uh, we have, we have um, Courtney. Oh. oh, okay, great. That's great. Go ahead. Yeah, I, um, I faced this issue because I was in the House for many years, and Dan Glickman is my name, and uh, I work here, so. And I favor an increase in the minimum wage, but, uh, you know, I, there's kind of a disconnect here. We talk about Walmart and Costco, but we don't talk about small businesses, and that's where almost all the opposition would come from in my congressional district, where people who would employ 10, 15, even, so, Often there was an exemption, but whatever it is, 50 or 100. And, and also in smaller towns in rural America. And, and um, this was very intense opposition. And it wasn't coming from as much ideological perspective, and, uh, but it was, it was al always coming from people who were not part of big business that could afford to do this. And so I wonder how you speak to this issue of the divisions between big and small business and between small towns, rural America, and big cities where, you know, the issues are somewhat different, even though the, the equities and the importance of, of paying people a living wage are also very important. But I think if you don't deal with that, you're going to miss all the politics of what Capitol Hill is going to deal with as, we, as they try to increase the minimum wage. Well, uh, you know, I mean, certainly that's a factor. Now, it seems to me one of the key issues is that, you know, so long as the minimum wage is lifted uniformly, most, I would think most of those businesses you're referring to could simply raise their prices a little bit. Yeah. In other words, you know, the whole thing is if you have a situation right now where they're subject to serious wage pressure that hits them but not necessarily their competitors, they obviously have an incentive to oppose those changes as much as possible. But if, for example, those businesses realize that everybody is, raise, ha, is raising their wages and that they could simply raise their prices by 5% and therefore cover their costs, I, I think their opposition would be a lot less than under the current situation. Now, you know, there clearly would be some, and also there might be a greater perception of problems than there actually would be if it were implemented. But I, I think you know, in a sense, in a free market, you raise your wage, you raise your prices to cover your costs. Yeah. And, and if I could just sure. pile on there a little bit, again, we have a particular conception in this country about how economics works and what the origins of prosperity are in a capitalist economy. And that is that we make the, if you make the rich richer, the economy is better off. That's been the foundational story. The Ryan budget is, is an instantiation of that idea, right? You, you make the rich richer and you make the poor poorer, right? Because 
that conception means that if the rich richer, the economy gets better. I don't know if and it's, if that, the poor know if it's richer, that binary in fairness, though. If you this idea that, that there could be a rugged individualism, I know that's a lightning rod for some people, but um, it's not kind of you can go and eat cake. It's this idea that you start with a minimum wage, and that's a starting point for you. You certainly hear it in, in, in campaign stumping with even Southern Democrats, that it, it's incumbent upon you to then pull yourself out of that, as fair or unfair as that is to no, say. No, no, no. But there's, there, there's an underlying conception about what makes an economy go. And I mean, after and, all, and the Republicans get more constituents, too, when you have that sort of bootstrap social mobility. I mean, whether or not I'm playing devil's advocate, I think that's a fair, that's a rhetorical point I, I'm, I, that's out there. I'm trying, I'm trying to, I don't, I don't exactly understand. So the, the thing is, is that if you, if, if, if from the point of view of a business owner, you, you all of a sudden don't see your employees just as costs, but as customers, you have a very different conception of where your self-interest lies, right? If employees are only costs, then it's very clear where your self-interest lies to reduce those costs. If, if, if your employees all of a sudden become, oh my gosh, the people who are actually going to buy our, my stuff, and, and, and by the way, all, all of the other businesses in my community, now their employees are going to be able to buy my stuff, then your self-interest lies in a different spot. And I think the great challenge is, is to change people's conception of where their self-interest lies. It, 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 I, I don't think they're going to be less self-interested. This is not about getting people to be nicer people. It's about getting them to change their idea about what will be better for them. <laughs> into a, in, 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 from, from a, frankly, a, a wrong-headed and short-term view into a right-headed, long-term view. And that's, I think, the great challenge. I was also going to say, um, there could be some of, because the small business issue is resonant, there could be some of large businesses who are sort of trumpeting that because it is more resonant. Because most minimum wage workers, most people who would see a raise are actually working for large businesses. That's who this would impact. You're, you are talking about Walmarts and the McDonald's. And so um, the, and when, you, when you look at the literature on this, and it is extensive. This is one of the most studied things in labor economics. These studies that are using the best methods show that increases in the minimum wage that we have seen actually haven't caused job loss. That's, that's, where the, that's what the literature shows. And so they're dealing with it somehow. It's somehow it's they're either doing some pass through prices, some of the um, increasing productivity or efficiency somehow. The, there's good evidence that um, when you increase the minimum wage, turnover goes down. Hiring and firing is really expensive for companies. And so if those costs go down, that, that absorbs some of the increase in the minimum wage. I'm just so saying that politically you have to deal with the issue. Yes, that's totally. true. Yes. Totally. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, all the abstract yeah. theories just don't they just in a <laughs> So yeah. if I can just, um, so uh, we have a little report that is on the table in the back there. By little, I mean short. Um, and 66% of low-wage workers work for companies that have 100 employ employees or more. So Heidi's point about uh, more um, uh, minimum wage workers working for larger employers is, is absolutely right. You know, there is a, an, a, the minimum wage coverage only applies above uh, to enterprises with five, half a million dollars and whatever. So the mom and pop shops are not covered. So there's some group of small businesses. Now, 
I'm certainly, I'm sure that there are individual cases in which a small business owner doesn't hire when he or she might otherwise have, yeah. may cut hours, something like that. Um, I, I don't think any of us in good conscience would ever pretend that there's, for individual cases, there's never any Trade-offs. Yeah. But if we look at yeah. this from the standpoint of the economy overall, society overall, the minimum wage, as with most every other way, labor standard, is better for us with a higher minimum wage. We have a question so. here. Microphone. Yes, um, I'm Teresa Anderson from the Urban Institute. I was wondering if you had an extreme increase in minimum wage, say to $15 an hour, right? That would effectively double somebody's income if they were a minimum wage worker currently working full time, more or less. Um, but a person might not actually think it's desirable to double their income. They might value leisure a little bit more, or as um, Robin brought up, there might be other sorts of fairly valuable benefits that they would lose by increasing their income by that amount, uh, like housing benefits or health insurance coverage. So could you talk through a little bit what the potential labor effort implications might be of increasing the minimum wage by a large amount? I mean, if it's a small incremental increase, then maybe it doesn't matter so much. But if you're really talking about like doubling somebody's income, you may see some effects. No, there were, I'm sorry, there were some assumptions that I had that you would disqualify for SNAP. I don't know how much these things are tapered off. Um, housing credits, uh, obviously Medicaid. I imagine, you know, with a doubling of pay that that would be. Yeah, I, I mean, it depends on the, the structure of it. Um, SNAP has a taper off, but things like housing benefits have a fairly large cliff where once you earn a certain amount, you lose the whole benefit. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how other people feel, but I, I for one, am totally comfortable with a one-for-one -one trade. I, I think an economy structured in a way so that you know, companies are allowed to pay people half of what they need to live and taxpayers make up the difference is insanely stupid. And if we raise the minimum wage of $15 an hour and everybody was in the same spot but taxpayers weren't making up the difference, I think, I think we've, we have massively benefited our society. Now, I'd like to hope also that we'd make those people's lives a lot better in the process by continuing a bunch of these things and by being infinitely more efficient in the way that we deliver uh, economic uh, prosperity to people via their employers rather than through, you know, a variety of other spots. But uh, for me, I'm totally comfortable with that. That would be a giant, giant benefit to our society. It sort of Personally. seems to me that the flip side of a that question, and I know you don't intend it, but is the argument that um, that someone made that um, you know if you really believe in economic freedom, and you have an employer who's willing to pay five dollars an hour, and an individual who's willing to do a job for five dollars an hour, shouldn't we do that? No, we shouldn't. Um, if, if you you know if we're going to have a wage-based economy, which is how most Americans live, we need to have decent wages. Now, one thing I just, you know, and we're, I, I wanted to take this in a way that we can interactively ask questions and, and, and spend more time on that. I think it's more useful to you. Um, there are ways of getting around this at will if you're an employee. I mean, there's a lot of slack in the labor system right now. We're not creating nearly the number of jobs that, that have to keep up with population growth and the hole that was blown in, in, in employment, full employment coming into this five years ago. So if you go on Craigslist, there are movers who are willing to move you for free if you give them another engagement or a referral out of that. 
there are people who are willing to accept the minimum wage and work long hours, maybe off the books. That, that is part and parcel of a system where there's still, we're far away from, from full employment. How do you see this juxtaposing with an increase in the minimum wage? Suppose it pushes through, $9 an hour. There's still so much slack in the system that could undermine that. So the literature on the effect of um, an increases in the minimum wage on employment suggests that it's not different when the unemployment rate is very high. That you also do not see a negative impact on employment when you are in a very slack labor market like we're in right now. So it, I don't think this is a bad time to do it. And in fact, getting to you guys' points earlier, this is this will have some stimulative effect. Yeah. You are getting money into the hands of people who are very likely to spend it, low and moderate income families. That's gonna stimulate some economic activity and generate some jobs. Yeah. So um, it does, it, it, this will actually work in the right direction. Yeah, Robin, for, for my own part, I'm not motivated, I'm not a social justice guy. I'm a prosperity guy. I don't want to raise the minimum wage because I, I feel sorry for those people. I want to ra raise the minimum wage because it will be good for business. Oh, but you have the noblesse outrage. I mean, you talked about it. It's a screwy system where... Well, I don't want to subsidize my competitors, right? Look, if you're Costco paying $20 an hour, don't you think it annoys the hell out of you that Walmart pays the same people $7 an hour? But they're doing it. Okay, Their but, stock's at an all-time high. Okay, but believe me. You know, of course, awesome. you know them. And, <laughs> and, and, and unilateral disarmament. Yes, exactly. I, I, you know, I think that, you, look, there are important social justice arguments that can be made. But, the, but to me, the most compelling reason to raise the minimum wage is that it will generate a virtuous cycle of increasing returns for everyone. We will be, we will be more prosperous, but so will, so will the shareholders of Walmart. When every citizen in America can spend more money at Walmart, Walmart will do more business. And when they do more business, they will be forced to hire more people, who in turn will be able to spend more money at Walmart, right? It, it, the thing about positive feedback loops is, is, is that they get bigger. It's a virtuous cycle, right? That's the reason to do it. Do you know, I, I think I'd like to add one sort of general point to some of this. And, it seems to me one reason a large rise in the minimum wage is possible right now and might be beneficial is actually the negative factor that so many traditional manufacturing jobs have been lost in America right. over the last generation or two. The point is the vast, vast, vast majority of people right now at the lower wage scale in America who are impacted by minimum wage work in the non-tradable service sector. They're not facing foreign yes. competition. In other words, if they were right now making cars or making steel, and if ra raising their wages would price them out of the international market and destroy their jobs, that would be a very valid point to raise. But those jobs don't exist anymore. Yes. The figures I've seen are that if you're looking, say, at a $12 an hour minimum wage, only roughly 3 or 4% of the workers impacted work in the manufacturing sector. So. You know, in a sense, maybe it would have been much better if we hadn't lost all these manufacturing jobs over the last generation or two, but they're gone. And so the problem is right now, what do we do for the people who work in the non-tradable service sector? And for them, a large rise in the minimum wage doesn't have the negative economic effects it would have for steel workers or people like that. Now, Ron, just a, a sure. follow-up on this. Uh, and, and Nick, you'll be informed on this too, in that right now there's this movement afoot. You see it with um, uh, Peter Thiel, a prominent venture capitalist, uh, 
part of the Yelp Mafia, as they call him. There's this movement afoot. Uh, uh, Heidi, you, know, you mentioned this as well with this affection toward college right now. Mm to skip college altogether, yeah. that you're not getting a return on that investment, that we are telling people that you need to avoid this $7.25 an hour purgatory by plowing $100,000 into a college education. What's going on? That, that, that's a very good point, and, and that's actually you know, a point I, I think it's important to focus on. One of the problems right now is, you know, leaving aside, I, I think Peter Thiel is talking more about very high-end individuals who yeah. become, become great in, intra entrepreneurs and change the world by skipping college. I mean, that's obviously one category, but it's a fairly small category. What we're talking about right now is that the vast majority of people who go to college, in many cases, are getting degrees in areas like business studies, which, you know, is not what people think of as a traditional college education. They're basically going to college in many cases because they think it's the only way they can avoid permanent poverty. Poverty at minimum wage or barely above minimum wage. Now, you know, again, I, I come from an academic background. I think it's wonderful for people to go to college, you know, if they want to go into a field like engineering or French literature or theoretical physics or, you know, either something that will raise their interest and involvement in academic fields or give them a very practical set of skills like building buildings or designing things. But I don't think it's such a good thing for people to take on tens of thousands of dollars in debt to get, a, for example, a college degree in business simply so they can get a job that pays $9 an hour rather than a job that but pays $7.25 But the stats in this deep recession show that you are far more immune to uh, some of the the, the ravages of what just happened if you do have that college degree. Exactly. But the reason for that is simply that it's a competitive marketplace. And if you have a college degree and somebody else doesn't, and there's only one job available, people will say, well, the guy with a college degree, even if it has nothing to do with the job I'm giving him, is probably more reliable, he's probably smarter, there are probably all those beneficial characteristics. If the minimum wage were a lot higher, something like $12 an hour or above that, a lot of the people right now who feel compelled to get a college degree wouldn't think it was as necessary. And you know, since many of the college degrees they're getting have nothing to do with their eventual job, it's probably much more efficient for society if they get a job that immediately, that pays them a reasonable living wage, rather than a situation where they're forced to take tens of thousands of dollars of debt simply to get the but same Ron, sort of job. Sorry, or sure, before we take another question. Sure. Suppose that minimum wage is bracketed higher, it is ratcheted higher, $12. Where are these jobs? In your mind's eye, what is the median job? Is it a food service job? Is it a grocery stocking job? Is it one in retail? Um, because Concomitant to this is you don't have a tradition here of, of technical training or vocational schools as, a, as another route. Exactly, but I mean that's the whole thing. Those jobs you're talking about would be the same jobs. It's just that the wages of those jobs would be increased and the prices the companies charge for the services they're providing. But the desirability of that from a prospective college matriculant, well, thinking, I mean, well, if I don't go that route, yes, I don't, I don't blow the 100K, but do I want to work? in a retail setting? Well, I mean, don't, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm sure other people would want to get in on this, but on that particular point, you know, traditionally, for example, people in America did not go to college if they planned to get a well-paying job in a factory or a traditional working class wages. In other right. words, most people, to be honest, are oriented more towards 
getting a good, reasonable income, a living wage, yes. rather than just spending four years in college studying business so they can get the same sort of job. I, I'm not saying no people would go to college, but I'm saying a lot of the people right now being forced to go to college to avoid poverty would prefer going straight from high school to a job as a food service worker or as a retail sales clerk if they were paid a reasonable wage right. to do those so jobs. I, I just sure. I just want to use one example. I'm not sure if anybody has ever traveled to Australia, but I've been several times. And my favorite thing about being in Australia is even the bus drivers feel completely politically and economically enfranchised. You ride on a bus and you talk to a bus driver about their life and they, they live in a nice little house and they have a weekend house and they have three kids in college. And no, they didn't have to go to college to get that job. And it is marvelous to be in a society where everybody feels like they're part of it and not marginalized and disenfranchised and drowning. And, 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 and I think that's a good thing. Now we have a question. Yeah. Well, there are a couple questions, but the microphone was passed here, and then we'll get to you right after it. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I have a question or comment. Um, we've talked quite a bit about the EITC and SNAP. A lot of that is focused at family with dependent children. And there are a lot of people now who no longer have dependent children or never had, who are poor or approaching poverty or in retirement. And I'm wondering whether we can get, in terms of creating a, a kind of political voice um, that convinces people in Congress to focus on that, whether we should also look at the, the needs, say, of women in their 50s who've come back, who work at in healthcare, which is another minimum, or social care, minimum service job, where you do often need some qualifications. So you, you, know, you can't just step off out, straight out of school into those jobs. But whether we should focus on those demographics and link it to aging and, and retirement security also when we push for the minimum wage. Th thanks. My name is Larry Michelle with the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, I just want to comment on the college minimum wage thing. I, uh, because I've worked a lot on both of those things. And I think we shouldn't get trapped in the either or kind of thing. I mean, the point is that a third of the workforce now has a college degree or more. And in any foreseeable future in the next 10 years, that's not going to be 50, 60, 70 percent, right? And there's no jobs for college grads that involve half the jobs. Uh, it's pretty clear that even college grads aren't doing well. Low-wage workers aren't doing well. In fact, it's pretty clear that hardly anybody is doing well. So it seems, uh, well, except for that top 1%, the top 0.1%, even better, uh, which is probably where you are. And the, um, which is fine. Congratulations. Um, uh, but the point is, we need better jobs. And I think this is what Chris was saying. We need better jobs at every level of occupation, every level of, uh, of skill uh, and, and education, and we need more jobs, period, because we won't get better wages and quality jobs for anybody unless we get rid of uh, you know, this persistently high unemployment, which is crazy. And I got to uh, congratulate Ron, uh, 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 I, I guess a conservative who uses a Keynesian multiplier. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, uh, you what you drank before you came in. Just got to uh, 
you know, uh, you know the, the joke among economists is that every, every uh, well, it wasn't until this period, uh, the definition of a, of a Keynesian is a Republican in a recession. Uh. Because when they're <laughs> in power, they always use yeah. Keynesian policy yeah. to get out of a recession. But I guess. Did everybody, did everybody notice it's a tad Orwellian? It says Ron Unz, publisher of the American Conservative. Uh, I have to kind of double take. Uh, so, so I want to pick up on something um, Nick said, and it also relates to job quality. You know, the middle class jobs, manufacturing jobs that sort of built the economy, post-World War II economy, were not inherently great jobs. They were dirty, yes, they were dangerous. Exactly. A lot of people right. who had those jobs didn't have a lot of education. They weren't highly skilled. It was unions that made yes. them great jobs. It was a strong regulatory floor by the federal government. Um, and that's what converted those jobs yes. into good jobs. Yes. If you go to a city like Las Vegas, it may not be as true now as it was 10, 15 years ago, but you had maids and housekeepers who were sending their kids to college, who were living middle-class lifestyles, who had training and advancement opportunities because there was such a strong labor movement in Las Vegas that it really was able to trans transform yes. those jobs into good jobs. There's no reason that home care work shouldn't be skilled good work. There's no reason, you know, if you if Saru Jairaman were here talking about restaurant workers, many restaurant workers want those to be their careers. Yes. These can be good jobs. Yes. We think of them as not being good jobs because we pay so little. Because we pay so little, we treat them as lousy jobs. Yeah. There's nothing inherent to those jobs yeah. that makes them lousy jobs. So I own a manufacturing company, and the thing is, is that we, we labor under this illusion that the, the high-paying jobs that left the country, these manufacturing jobs, were somehow unbelievably high-skilled work, and that and that being a barista at Starbucks is profoundly different. It's not. A good barista at Starbucks is every bit as skilled as uh, earning $20,000 a year as a production worker at GM who was earning $65,000. But, the twice, only, but the, twice as pierced. Yes, exactly. <laughs> True. But the only difference is power, right? The ability to negotiate a fair wage. And the simple facts are that Starbucks could, could, could increase the, the, the salaries of all of their workers by 25%, earn a third less EBITDA, uh, it, their profits would go down a third, and everybody's happy, right? Starbucks is still a massively profitable company. The workers have gone from poor to middle class, and we have a high-functioning society. Wait, before we go on, and, and you can work your answer into this, I feel like, and there must be an impression, unless it's just me, that a lot of this conversation is in the theoretical and the ideal, where we're in this town where real politic is what determines it. And imagine if you're in Eric Cantor's office, or you get that minute with the five most powerful people on either side of the aisle. What kind of sugar pill, what kind of chaser would you have to throw on to some of these arguments? to get both parties to espouse them. Because we talked about the, the bipartisan bona fides here, but certainly it's not going to happen in this environment. I, I think a lot of the problem, to be honest, on the politics side of it, is just that people in those corridors of power have gradually, over the last generation or two, become so disconnected from the realities of ordinary workers that they don't recognize the resonance of this issue. For example, in California, I'm not sure how many of you are aware of it, but uh, back about 15, 20 years ago, 
Uh, you know, uh, the minimum wage in California hadn't increased for many years. And uh, there was an effort by some of the unions. They were talking vaguely about raising minimum wage. Nobody paid any attention. And then actually, um, the woman who uh, eventually then became, oh, right, Hilda Solis, she and a very small number of people decided to put in a little bit of money and put a ballot initiative before the voters that would raise the minimum wage. I believe it was by 30% in California at that time. It was a very large increase. And there was a massive media campaign. You know, every all the political elites in Sacramento said it would be a disaster, it would be a terrible idea. It, you know, it would be crazy. It would destroy the California economy. And then, you know, some of the Republican or conservative pollsters started polling the issue. And they found it was so incredibly popular across all segments of the population, they actually advised their clients not to even oppose it because it was impossible to defeat. It ended up passing, I believe, by close to 70% of the vote. And California's economy boomed afterwards. And you know, why, you can ask, why hadn't all the Democrats who've been running Sacramento for decades before ever done something like that by themselves? It's because the sort of lobbyists who they spend all their time talking with don't really focus on that. In other words, the sort of, quote, liberal issues the people in Sacramento normally focused on usually dealt with cultural issues or other types of issues rather than just raising the wage of most of the workers in California. Right. And you know, that sort of thing, I mean, to give you one more example, I, I come from Silicon Valley. And back about a year ago, a few students at San Jose State University, just as, they're in, as part of their class project, said, oh, why don't we raise the minimum wage in San Jose? It was just, as far as I can tell, a few students. They started a movement to do that. They put it on the ballot. You know, it generated some support. It was massively outspent at the polls by the opponents. And it won with uh, about 60% of the votes. So you know, there was a huge increase in the San Jose minimum wage. But the point is, whenever you put a minimum wage vote on the ballot, it almost always wins with between 60 and 70% of the vote. It's a huge landslide issue. And the reason it isn't done more is because basically the sort of lobbyists and people in political elite circles don't really care or know about it. In fact, I would bet, I've sort of joked with some people, that I would bet if you had most of the political elites in America who were asked what the minimum wage was, and not the ones who focus on this direct issue, but just the general ones, I don't think they'd be right to within a factor of 20 or 30 percent. I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. Most of the elites in America are so disconnected from yes. the lives of ordinary people, they just pay no attention to this issue, even though it's a huge political winner that in many cases cuts across both ideological or party lines. Sure. Because Dan Glickman, yeah. who sure. had, to, had to leave, yeah. unfortunately, he said one of the critical features, though, because I asked him this yeah. very question, I said, but it's really popular. And he said, well, it's intensity. And the yeah. problem is small businesses are so intensely against it that the, he knows most people want it, but, you know, it's, and so, and so I think that is still, you know, to your point about needing to sugarcoat it somehow, there still needs to be something done and, to, and, to and move politics, which is different than. And are there proposals to that? If I, mean, I can respond to that, that's exactly the reason a high minimum wage has a yes. much better chance of passing than a low one. In other words, if you have intensity of opposition from the groups you're talking about, and all you're proposing, for example, is an increase of $2 an hour or something like that. Or 50 cents. Right, or 50 yeah. cents. The support you get is fairly small. If, on the other hand, you're talking about an increase that's large enough that the average worker realizes he would gain $5,000 a year on that proposal. You're in that generates space. massive intensity on the other yeah. side. So in other words, it, it, you know, it's counterintuitive, but I don't think a small minimum wage increase has any chance in Congress, yeah. while a very large one might. 
Yes. Um, Maureen, we have five minutes, yes? Right. We had a question here. I know you're waiting. Okay. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Michelle McIntyre, and I work with the National Consumers League and actually do a lot of work on wage theft. Um, but it's interesting that we're having this, this discussion today because yesterday morning in the Senate Health Committee, it was about the minimum wage, and specifically Harkin and Miller's bill of 10 10 an hour, but also indexing that. Part of that bill includes tipped workers. Tipped workers are still paid a federal minimum wage of $2.13. And my question to you is, one, the indexing, and two, these tipped workers, because you know we had in the six people who were witnesses, two of them were from the NRA, and in this case, that's the National Restaurant Association. And they're the same <laughs> ones. It's, I mean, NRA has a lot of different <laughs> things going on with it, but this is the same you know group that was headed by Herman Cain back in the 90s, and that Back in the 80s and the 90s, they were able to lobby Congress that every time that there was an increase to the minimum wage, the tip minimum wage stayed the same. So it's been there for over 20 plus years at $2.13. What can we do about that? And if you're talking about moving everybody to $15 an hour, are you also including those tip minimum wage workers? I have no idea. Yeah, the, the, the Harkin-Miller legislation would raise tip workers minimum wage uh, to 70% of the minimum wage, and then it would, it would also be indexed. And, would continue to go up whenever the minimum wage went up. And a number of states actually have uh, a more generous tipped worker guarantee or no tipped worker wage at all. I think Washington State may not have any at all. Um, California doesn't. It's really interesting because, um, you know, uh, it largely affects restaurant employees. Most of them are women. Um, poverty is three times higher among restaurant employees than among any other group. And, um, and a lot of people who make their living serving food qualify for food stamps. Um, I have a question over here. Well, actually, I have a comment. Um, I'm Stephanie Powers at the Council on Foundations. Um, and it occurs to me, I just had a big aha moment. Um, wouldn't this situation, this raising the minimum wage, I mean, a lot, which I had never really considered. So I appreciate this conversation today tremendously. Wouldn't that help the Republicans with their big problem in 2014, and that is how they're going to get the Latino and the Hispanic Talk. vote in 2014? And shouldn't one of you guys who are sitting to the right here take that message up there, because the ladies to the left don't have a chance when they get up there. <laughs> that, that's exactly another angle that might help put pressure on the Republican-controlled House to move something like this forward. For example, if you look at the figures, you know, right now, I believe when I looked at the numbers for a $12 target, but, you know, obviously it, it's continuous along the scale. In the case of a $12 an hour minimum wage, 55% of all the Hispanic wage workers in America would get an increase. And the average increase would be, again, about $5,000 an hour. Those are massive numbers. Furthermore, Hispanics are disproportionately in the wage worker category rather than salary worker. So when you count, for example, their immediate family and relatives and that sort of thing, you know, their brothers, sisters, parents, children, we're probably talking, I would think, 60, 70, 80 percent of all the Hispanics in America benefiting from something like that. The Republicans are terrified with how they're doing with Hispanics right now. If something were put forth that would attract 60, 70, 80 percent of Hispanic support, I think the Republicans would be very cautious about trying to block something like that. So, you know, that's why 
under the right circumstances, a, a <coughs> figure like $12 or even higher an hour that captures people's imagination could generate massive political momentum behind it. And the truth is, you know, the Republicans number one care about getting elected and winning votes. And you know, if lobbyists tell them, or even if small businesses tell them, you know, we don't like something like that, but you know, if they're terrified of getting wiped out permanently among the Hispanic population, I would think they would be very cautious about trying to block a proposal like that. Now we have time for one more question. With, uh, with all the uh, talk about uh, the value of uh, college educations or not, I was curious what the panel thought about the whole discussion of whether grad assistance in colleges um, should be paid a certain amount. And here in Washington with all the interns, even though these jobs are intended to be temporary for many young people, in fact, these are becoming fairly long-term, just as some of these service workers. So what are your thoughts on that? Let's throw in a journalist raise across the board, too. Journalist. <laughs> 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 I'll start. I, I don't think know everyone anything. has come. Or I don't not, know anything about this. When it, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. One of the things that we will say on the, in particular, the unpaid internship situation <coughs> is if, you, if there's a group of people who's regularly working for free, they're not in huge demand. <coughs> so it sort of underscores this the, 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 we, we don't need to rapidly accelerate the share of our young people that are getting college degrees because we, I mean, this sort of, this, is a, this really highlights that problem because a lot of them are and have to be working for free in order to advance. Yeah, I think if people are working, they should be paid a wage. Yes. Period. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is the law, yeah. and, and is I there, right. Is, and there, I, is there any comment to the grad assistance? I think is a question. Oh, I don't have. There was a there was a uh, fair kind of uh, battle between. Well, uh, that had to do with organizing, right? right. I yeah. mean, I, I, again, I think if they're employees, which I think many of them are, they should be able to organize into unions. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, yeah. you know, I'm willing to stipulate that. A $15 minimum wage could have some carve-outs for teenagers and, you know, I don't know what else. I mean, there have to be some reasonable accommodations you can make for a complex economy. But, you know, the point remains the same, that, you know, you, can, you could restructure the economy and the society in one fell swoop in this, swoop in this very simple way. I thank so. all of you for a really thoughtful <laughs> conversation. Nicely done. source. It would be a great